Thank you all so much for leading us in worship this morning. That song is so, so in tune with where my heart is today. With your final heartbeat, kiss the world goodbye. You know, sometimes we are faced with the reality that life is not good. We feel this pressure. Every day has to be good. Every week has to be good. But here's the reality. It ain't good. It's not always going to be good. If it was, why would we long for something greater? This is not our home. Our home is on glory's side. Then we will laugh. But let some tears fall while we're here. I'm longing of our home. Amen? That is free. All right, let's open our Bibles. Ever say word? We are in Matthew chapter 6. At least we will eventually get there. And so open your Bible there. Scroll there on your phone or tablet or other device. Uh, because many of you have Matthew's gospel completely memorized, just flip there in the Rolodex of your mind. Now, last week we, we had this discussion about a desolate place. In fact, this place that we've been invited to go meet with Jesus. In fact, it is a place where Jesus often went during his earthly ministry. We came to recognize that the pressures and the never-ending needs of the people continued to grow exponentially during his earthly ministry. And the more that the pressures increased... The more that Jesus sought out a desolate place, not just so that he can get away, he could get away from the people, but so that he could be with his father. I quote here from Richard Foster in his seminal work, Celebration of the Disciplines. He writes, In the midst of an exceedingly busy ministry, Jesus made a habit of withdrawing to a lonely place apart. He did this not just to be away from people, but so that he could be with God. What did Jesus do time after time in those deserted hills? He sought out his heavenly father. He listened to him. He communed with him. And he invites and beckons us to do the same. And Jesus is inviting us out into desolate places so that we can connect in deeper intimacy with our heavenly father and with him. And here's the reality. Without that intimacy... Without that communion and connection with our Father, we are literally suffocating in this life. The pressures that are continuing to grow, the immense pressures surrounded by ever-increasing needs in a world that is constantly trying to convince us that we can get along just fine without God. It is absolute lunacy. And I think in the process, we're actually losing our very life and I know that we are losing our distinctives as citizens, not of this kingdom, but of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. In fact, there is to be a quality and a texture of our lives that is distinctly different. When it comes to the values and passions and rhythms and purposes of our life, it should be different. And here's the rub. There is so much pressure for us to conform to this culture that there really is no distinction at all between the Christians, those of faith, and those of culture. And I will, I will stress, it's not because the culture is becoming more Christian, thus being more saturated, thus the distinction is lost. I think what is actually happening is we're becoming less and less alive as believers, as Jesus talks about, we are like that salt that is becoming unflavored. 
We are like a lamp that is instead of being placed on a stand, we are being hidden under a basket. And I believe the reason this is happening is because we are not meeting with him in truly intimate ways. In fact, the scriptures tell us we were made for communion with God. We were literally made for it. Genesis chapter 2 so clearly shows us that God created humanity in his own image for communion and community with one another and with himself. A communion and an intimacy that was radically altered at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But there's supposed to be a restoration. That in Christ, he is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. He is this entry, this restoration of a relationship that was lost. And an intimacy that we are daily being invited into. In fact, it is an intimacy that without, we are left completely exhausted and crushed, spiritually dry. I'm willing to bet that many of us are spiritually parched, hungry, exhausted. All the while, Jesus is saying, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. As we see in the text of Scripture. And so last week I encouraged us to find that desolate place in our life. Maybe it's a quiet corner in the house. We haven't had much of a quiet corner. We've had a newborn in our home. This little beautiful seven-month-old. She is gorgeous, by the way, Mama. And we are so, so pleased to have her at our house. And it's so wonderful that y'all are going home. Because we get to restore our sanity. We think we want to have another little baby. Then the baby comes home and we're like, oh, there ain't much quiet. We need to find that quiet place. Maybe it's a a discreet little chair in the backyard where we can steal away. Maybe it is a park or a closet where we can get away to be with God. Please write this down. Apply this to your life. Find a place for uninterrupted and unhurried time with God. I'm going to repeat that. Find a place for uninterrupted, unhindered, and unhurried time with God. That is a place set apart. And what we'll discover in that place is there is restoration and renewal and soul revival. This is not a place that we get away to to watch Netflix. It's not a place where we go to Snapchat or to send out a tweet. It's not a place of planning and productivity. In fact, we're being invited to a place that is going to seem unbelievably unproductive. By the way, productivity, it's an idol. We wear busy like a badge of honor, and it's sapping our souls. We are being invited to separate for a moment from the pressures and the grind of everyday life to connect with God. Richard Foster later writes that the detachment from the confusion all around us is in order to have a richer attachment to God. And so I hope you've begun to find such a place in your own life. A place set apart of disconnection where we get away from the the noise, the problems, the pressures, the passions that just seem to swallow us whole. 
I feel like I'm being constantly bombarded, whether actively or passively, with content from the culture and the world. And it's just wars and violence and hatred. Sound bites. So noisy. I can't even hear Jesus speak. And the question that I have been asking, and one that you may be wondering about, is what do we do once we get to this so-called desolate place? And let me be real with you. I'm just, can I just be real with you for a moment? Look, if, I can be fake too. If you want me just to smile and shiny it up, I can do that too. You want to do that? Can I just be real with you for a moment? I realize that this sermon series is not relevant it's not relevant to our culture. It's not relevant to our life. We are so unbelievably busy, the idea is almost laughable to find time to get away for uninterrupted, unhindered, unhurried time with God. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? And as I chew on that, I realize that there's a sickness in my own soul. Something has gone terribly wrong. And so, <laughs> I, as the preacher, am also the student. And I'm being called to this desolate place, as are all of us. And the question you may have, and that I've often asked, is what do we do once we get there? I made this mention last week. We follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's incredible as we trace Jesus' earthly ministry through the Gospels, we can actually follow and model our worship and our Christian life after him. And so, just a quick review of some of the, the passages that discuss Jesus going to this desolate place. Maybe it will reveal where, what we're supposed to be engaged in when we do find this desolate place. We'll start in Mark chapter 1. Don't worry, we'll get to Matthew. Hold your place there. I said we eventually get there. Mark 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he... Oh, I didn't hear that. What did he do? He prayed, okay. Luke chapter 5 verse 15 through 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and greater crowds, and greater crowds, and greater needs. They all gathered to hear him. They came to be healed of their infirmities, but he would often, you can insert often there, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. In these days, Luke 6, 12, he went out on the mountain to, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Matthew 14, 23, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to, uh-huh, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 39. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and, uh-huh, and he going a little farther, he fell on his face and he, the list goes on. Jesus was always getting away so that he could pray and commune with his Father. Jesus prayed. He prayed every single day, throughout the day, and constantly. Jesus prayed when the pressures began to increase for his time and his teaching and his healing ministry. And as we saw last week, if Jesus allowed people to dictate his time, he would never fulfill his purpose. 
We are living in a world that is constantly trying to dictate our time so that we will not accomplish our purpose. And I'm telling you, it's intentional. We are intentionally being molded and shaped and conformed to a pattern and a way of life so we don't fulfill our God-given purpose. Jesus got away to pray when he was making major life decisions. When he selected the 12, he got away for an entire night before he chose the 12. And even one of them was the son of perdition. And as I think about that, I think about all of the major life decisions I make, and then I'm like, at the end, I'm like, oh, hey, yeah, hey, God, can you bless this, please? I remember the first time Madeline and I bought a car. You ever done, you go out to buy a car? Isn't that a great experience? We all love that experience, don't we? This beautiful jalopy of a car. Gosh, we thought it was just this incredible hot rod. It wasn't. 26 some odd percent interest. Uh, it was just a terrible investment. But at the end, we like prayed. We're like, God, may this be your will. And looking back, I'm thinking maybe God had something better. Jesus prayed when he was seeking wisdom and guidance from his father. He was always seeking that the father's will be done. When in great sorrow, when John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus prayed. Before he went to the cross, in great anxiety and, and vexation of the soul, he prayed. Jesus was constantly praying to the extent that the disciples were always finding him praying. I quote here from Warren Wiersbe. As he writes about the great argument for prayer is the fact that our Lord was a man of prayer. He prayed, and he goes through this list. He prayed all the time. Jesus was always praying. And he wasn't just modeling prayer. He was also teaching prayer. And the disciples often would come to him and ask him, hey, teach us to pray like this unknown disciple in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Don't worry, we're getting to Matthew. It says, now Jesus was, what was he doing in a certain place? He was praying. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. If there is a prayer that the Lord desires to answer, it's that prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. We often have this idea that it's somehow going to be intuitive, like we should just know how to pray. You know what? If we should just know how to pray, Jesus would have responded, you don't have to ask me to teach you how to pray. You should already know how to do it. In fact, you already know how to do it, so do it. But that's not how he responds. In fact, this may surprise you, but Jesus taught quite a lot regarding prayer. He not only modeled it, but he taught it. And it was on one such occasion that Jesus gave quite an extended discourse on prayer when he sat down with a group of his disciples. In fact, he talked quite a bit about this, this kingdom of God concept and this reality that as Jesus' people were to live distinctly different. And in this particular discourse found in Matthew chapter 6, ha, told you we'd get there, starting in verse 5, Jesus set out to teach us about prayer. He's like, hey, look, come, I will teach you. First of all, he's going to teach us what prayer isn't. There are a lot of false concepts about prayer. There's all kinds of religious movements today that talk about prayer. In fact, the new spiritual cliche is prayer. And people tell us, oh, prayer is so good for you. Oh, it lowers your blood pressure. And scientists tell us that it's so good for us physiologically and psychologically. I'm like, yo, that's just a byproduct, but that's not the purpose of prayer. 
There are distinct purposes and reasons why we pray. And there are some reasons, well, we'll see here in just a moment, what prayer isn't. Prayer is not for a religious show. This is hard because so much of our Christian life is being packaged so consumers will buy it. Guess who the consumers are? Who are the Christian consumers? We are. Our faith is constantly being packaged for profit. Jesus says, and when you pray. I find it interesting. He doesn't say if you pray or if you get around to it or if you think it's a good idea. He's going to say multiple times, verses 5, 6, and 7, when you pray, when you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites. He says, it's not a flattering word. It's hypocrites. It basically means religious actors, religious showboaters. He's like, don't be like them. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What Jesus is referencing are the religious elite that would walk around in long flowing phylacteries and robes and they would lift up their hands and offer great, loud, eloquent, ear-tickling prayers to the extent that people who heard them, they would go, wow, what a spiritual person. All the while the Lord is telling us that those words that they spoke with such eloquence were literally repulsive to God. Jesus calls such people hypocrites and pretenders and religious actors whose only reward is the applause and awe of their audience. And I'll say that's not just with prayer. So much of our spiritual life can be done as a performance before others. I can get up here and, and preach during the, every single week and have people come up and go, that was such a great sermon. And I go, oh, well, you know, glory to God. But deep inside, I'm like, yeah, it was pretty good, wasn't it? All the while, the Lord's like, there's your reward. We can do our serving to be seen by others. We can drop, oh, yeah, the other day I spent a long time in prayer. The Lord's like, there you go, there's your reward. There's a story about Lyndon B. Johnson, his press secretary, while he was president, a guy by the name of Bill Moyer. He was saying grace at a staff luncheon, and apparently Bill Moyer was kind of soft-spoken, and so in the middle of the prayer, Lyndon Johnson bellowed, speak up, Bill, I can't hear a thing, to which Moyer replied, oh, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. Even presidents must bend their knee to the king of kings. Our spiritual life is not for show. Our prayer is to be between us, the worshiper, and the, the, the focus of our worship, who is God, or us as worshipers collectively gathered in our Father in heaven. Prayer is not for religious show. Prayer is also not about badgering an ambivalent deity. Verse 7, and when you pray. There's that phrase again. And when you pray. Not if you pray, but when you pray. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. And what he's referencing was the common practice of Gentiles like trying to badger their, their deities into doing what they wanted them to do. So they would repetitiously repeat phrases. We kind of do this in Christian circles. And I find some of the phrases that we use in prayers fascinating. One of the ones that jumps out to me is a hedge of protection. We often talk about this hedge of protection. I don't know what that means. 
I mean, I think I know what it means. One comedian points out a hedge of protection is like what, like a hedge, like a, uh, bushes that surround us. I don't know how protective that is. But we say things without thinking about them, and we pray them because we've been taught to pray them. We repetitiously say them, but they don't have much meaning. You know what would have meaning? Pray that that person would be surrounded by a cloud of hosts, an army of angels like Elisha, with flaming swords drawn. Pray that prayer. But asking for bushes to be surrounding people, I don't know, what that, I don't know if that's as, as effective. Right? Like, there's so many times where we say things because we've been taught them all the while. The Lord is like, that's not really prayer. Three times in this passage, the Lord states, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. What Jesus is saying is that Jesus' people are praying people. In verse 6, he says, now when you pray, here's where you go. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. That is a desolate place. That is a place where you get alone for unhindered, unhurried, uninterrupted time with your father. And he says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus says, find a desolate place away from the distractions, away from the interruptions and the noise. Where we come and spend time with our father. And then, here's what's crazy, we are rewarded for it. Family, just out of curiosity, what is the reward for prayer? We often think that it is when he answers our prayer. You know when God answers our prayer? Prayer is not us getting our will to move heaven's will to bring about our will on earth. That's not prayer. Seeing our prayers answered is when our will is aligned with the sovereign will of the Father and we see him move in that power and that expression of prayer. You know what the greater reward is? Intimacy with your Father and our Father in heaven. That's the great reward. As a source of life, Jesus tells us, do not be like the religious hypocrites, nor like the babbling pagan Gentiles. Verse 8, he says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Did you know that? Did you know that your father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him? There's times where I'm like, hey, just in case you didn't know, Father, it's like so crazy. He knows. He knows every single one of your needs before you even ask. And you may be wondering, well, then why does he say, teach us to ask? Just imagine how odd it would be if you had a group of kids at home and you as father and mother and you had this relationship where the kids never talked to you and they just sat down at the table with forks in their hands. As a parent, you want to meet their need, correct? You know their need. You recognize their need. But it would be so strange if there was no communication. I don't even think that's a relationship. And what I find fascinating is that one of the names that God reveals himself is as Father which for some of us is a dirty word or a bad word. Some of us didn't have the best fathers. And so that word's kind of tainted. I believe the Lord was wanting to take that name back because that name is significant. Just as like I've spoken through the series, we approach him in childlike faith. He is our father in heaven. He is describing that he is provider. And this may, this may blow your mind a little bit, but the Lord, the Father in heaven, he loves to meet our needs. Our Father in heaven loves to meet our needs. He's not ambivalent. He is omniscient. 
He's not unaware or confused regarding our needs. He's not calloused to our needs. We come, we are approaching our Heavenly Father. And as we approach, Jesus says, and when you approach, this is how you pray. He gives us this incredible, like say, like roadmap or discussion of prayer of what it looks like when we do approach the Father in prayer. And it's interesting because the prayer that Jesus gives us in many circles has become a repetitious prayer that is prayed mindlessly. Even though the Lord told us not to pray that way. Still okay, because we maybe memorize it, maybe gives us a structure for prayer in the future. But when Jesus says pray then like this, he's like, here's an example of what prayer is to be like. It's, it's a place. See, family, prayer is a place. It becomes sacred that whether you bow your head over the lunch table or at dinner, or you bow your head in your closet, or in the quietness of a corner of a busy lunchroom at the office, it becomes sacred. Do you know why prayer is sacred? Because you are speaking his name. His name is holy. It is to be set apart. That when we speak his name, it is, is akin to when the fire consumed the bush and the burning or the burning of the bush in the backside of Sinai, when the Lord spoke and said, Take off your sandals for where you stand is holy. What made that little piece of desert holy? God was there. And when you speak his name, is present and that place becomes sacred and set apart you're not just breathing earth's air you are breathing heavens you're approaching the throne room and so i want to give us a few examples uh teach us five things specifically and this will be over the course of the next couple of messages but of what prayer is as this place first prayer is a place where we approach or we meet with our father in heaven the lord teaches us our father in heaven hallowed be your name that when we are approaching our Father in heaven, it's not just my Father. Notice it is our Father. Do y'all see that? Our Father in heaven. Even in the prayer itself, it is this mindset of we are a community of believers approaching our Father. It's so often I approach in prayer with my list of needs. My Father in heaven. This is what I need. All the while the Lord is saying, don't forget. I'm not just your Father. I'm the father of all believers on planet earth, father of humanity, father of creation. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I've given us this definition over the course of this series, the father, our supreme deity, the one who's responsible for the origin and the care of all that exists. He has created it, and he is the one that is caring for it. He possesses with complete authority all he's created. He is the Lord. He is holy. His name is hallowed. Sometimes I think of the way we approach the Lord. It's like we're talking to our homeboy or some acquaintance or somebody. We are approaching the creator. And it's true. In and through Christ, we are invited into the throne room. But sometimes we walk in and we're like, all right, Padre, here's a couple of requests. Bam, bam, bam. And we walk out. I got to imagine that something has gone terribly wrong in our concept of God when we speak to him that way. He is holy. In fact, the scriptures tell us that even his name is to be set apart. And so prayer is this place where we approach and meet with our Father who is in heaven, 
and is a place where we get a kingdom mindset. This is blowing my mind. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just this morning, I was reading out of the prophecy of Daniel. It is this passage where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a vision of this statue. And in the statue, there's the head of gold, and I think it's the chest and shoulders of bronze. I'm kind of slaughtering this. The, the waist of, and the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. Anyway, what's important is there's this big rock that is cut out, not by human hands, and it smashes this image. And Daniel interprets the dream and says this, this stone that is, that is not hewed by human hands is a kingdom. And it crushes all other kingdoms. All other kingdoms succumb to the kingdom of God that comes on planet earth. We are awaiting the theocratic rule of God on planet earth. And when we pray your kingdom come, we are literally changing our mindset from this earthly kingdom. We spend inordinate amounts of time taking care of our own kingdom, living in the kingdom on this earth, that we forget about the kingdom of God. And I'll tell you right now, a kingdom of God perspective and mindset is so different than the kingdom of this world. I'm going to give you just a few brief examples. When we come to our Father in prayer, we are, we are having our mind and our mindset changed. Because the kingdom of God is paradoxical to the kingdom of this earth. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, we get a few examples of how different the kingdom of God mindset is from the kingdom of this earth. Blessed, Jesus says blessed, are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are impoverished and in need and dependency in spirit. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus came not just to preach the gospel of our salvation. He came to reveal to us the kingdom of God and a different way of approaching life. He says, look, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We don't think mourning is a blessing. But the ancients to the presence have been weeping. And there's a blessing in sorrow. We keep trying to medicate our way out of sorrow. There's a blessing with tears. We're not there yet. It is a sorrowful thing to walk out our existence as sojourners and foreigners in a foreign land. This ain't our home. I'm reminded of Isaiah when he entered into the throne room of God and great sorrow. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a people of unclean lips. We should have a sorrowful heart as we see the condition of our culture. It should break our heart. He said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Meekness? What if you drove with meekness? What would that look like? What would it look like if we operated our businesses with meekness? Oh, you're never going to get ahead that way. Not in this kingdom. Goes on to say, blessed are the merciful. We are living in one of the most unmerciful generations this world has probably ever seen. You want to live distinct in this culture? Operate with mercy. 
When we come to God in prayer, we are asking him to change our mindset. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So often, our prayer and our desire is to have our will be done. And the Father is saying, no, you approach, you lay your will on the altar and submit yourself to the will of God. Listen to this by Warren Wiersbe. I love this. Prayer is not telling God what we want, then selfishly enjoying it. Doesn't that hurt a little bit? There's times where I'm like, Lord, I know it is your will that I win the lottery. Hmm. I am just going to, I'm going to honor you with it and myself with a Maserati. I just, I feel like this is your will. And it's strange how God just doesn't answer those prayers. Isn't that odd? It goes on to say prayer is asking God to use us to accomplish what he wants so that his name is glorified, not our own. His kingdom is extended and exalted and strengthened and his will is done. That is prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is this place where we get a kingdom mindset. And this morning, I'm going to end right here. Prayer is a place. There's so much more to say, but we're, we're going we're to stop here. But prayer is a place where we daily seek our, own, our needs. And we are, we are often told this, this totally misguided thought that, oh, you don't have to bring your, your needs to God. I mean, he's so busy. He's got other things to do. Yesterday, I had a great time with a good friend of mine. We were, we were hanging out, and I lost a key. And I couldn't find the key. I kept looking for the key. You ever lost your keys? And so I'm sitting there. I was like, I should probably pray about it. He goes, no, 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 just ask St. Anthony. I was like, who? He goes, St. Anthony. He's the saint of lost things. And I was like, I didn't know that. He goes, yeah. God's kind of busy. He's kind of delegated that. I was like, oh. This whole time I've been searching for my keys. I had no idea. Well, actually, the Lord himself is the one that says, no, 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 you take your needs, your daily needs, the insignificant and the big to him himself. You take it to the Father. That is why in verse 11, the Lord Jesus teaches us, give us this day our daily bread. I can't think of anything more insignificant than daily bread. We bring to him our daily needs. It's a way of describing the least and the greatest need we may have. We all have daily needs. And here's the reality check. We don't get to approach him like with Costco prayer where we get like a bulk, bulk for the week. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray for my, my weekly bread or my monthly bread or hey, my yearly. I'll get, it, I'll get my whole year of praying done right now. There is a reason why I believe God is wanting us to approach him with our daily needs. And here's, here's the great blessing. Here's this revelation. The great blessing of seeking our Father with our daily needs is that we will begin to see him more and more as our daily provider. Family, that is a blessing. The great blessing of seeking our Father with our daily needs is that we will begin to see him more and more as our daily provider. What a relief. We will be set free from the bondage of trying to be our own providers. We are constantly attempting to be our own providers or seeing ourselves as responsible to provide every need. That is a burden that no one can carry. There's times where we also take inappropriate praise for the provision that we have. We're like, hey, look what I did. For, I, I did all this. All the while the Lord's like, no, I gave you that. Prayer, it also protects us from trying to satisfy every one of our selfish wants. I could totally stop right here, but I'm not going to because I just got to say this last part. We live in a world 
where we almost don't even have to pray. In fact, we live in a world where so many of our needs are just met by where we live that we, we actually spend all of our time in this land of want. We live in a world where we can get almost anything we want without prayer. Isn't that incredible? You want to know who offers us this unbelievable abundance for a small fee? Visa? Amazon MasterCard? Lines of credit, investments, wealth, wealth growth opportunities? Oh my gosh, every single day. You won't believe this. I already don't. No one else knows about this. I'm sure you read it on the internet and everybody knows about it. I invested one time in a, a diamond mine in Canada. I have a piece of paper that says so. That's all I got for my investment. All these, like the lottery, for example, it's all saying, you don't need to pray. If you want something, you can have it. All you have to do is sign. We're constantly being sold on the idea that we don't need to pray. All the while, we are spiritually suffocating, attempting to satisfy our spiritual needs with the things this earth offers that do not satisfy. Prayer brings us back to a place of sanity where we are content with our daily needs and we're not killing each other for our wants. For example, Black Friday. Y'all have seen the videos. People are literally stomping each other for, I was about to say crap, you can't say crap from the pulpit, for crap we don't need. I saw a couple of ladies going to blows over a junky set of pots and pans. Prayer sets us free from the insanity of the consumeristic culture of more, more, more. All the while we are dying more, more, more. All the while the Lord is saying, come away. Buy yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And that is where we will pick up next week. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh, we can lay down that constant need for our daily wants. What a blessing. Father, we approach you today as a body of believers. We ask for that restoration of relationship that was lost. And you invite us into the presence of yourself. And we approach through Jesus. Jesus, you are our way, truth, and life. Father, you are holy. You are enthroned in heaven. You are a king over a kingdom. We have forsaken all other loyalties. Placed our faith in your son. And as citizens of that kingdom that is to come. I pray that our mindset, our rhythm, our passions, our purposes would be conformed 
to your will and not our own. Father, we are tired and exhausted and insane. We need, desperately need time with you. Please create in us a hunger that cannot be satisfied in any other place. And that we would come to this sacred space. And find rest for our souls. We love you, Father. We ask this in the Son, the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stand together. I pray that you were able to find some time to get away.